Well, I am absolutely right. delighted to say that uh, joining me today on the Godcast is uh, English soul singer Kenny Thomas. Now, Kenny is a multi-platinum-selling artist who had a huge uh, career selling shed loads of records in the 90s and uh, had a number of uh, top uh, top 10 hits and um, Kenny it's really great to get you on the Godcast how are you? It's a pleasure Father Alex I'm good how are you? Yes I'm okay and and um, just tell tell people where in the world you are this morning. I'm in Norfolk, sunny Norfolk today. It's been raining for a few days, but it's nice today. So yeah, I moved up uh, to Norfolk a, a few years ago with the family, and yeah, it's very peaceful. Very peaceful. Originally a Londoner, though, obviously, as you can tell from the from the uh, the clear London accent. Yeah, well, actually, I, I'm a Londoner as well, but you you wouldn't know. I I, I originate from Tooting. Whereabouts uh, Whereabouts do you originate from, Kenny? I was born in Islington, North London, and then grew up and uh, the rest of my days in, in Hackney on the borders of East London. So, yeah, London are through and through, really. Yeah, you've still got the accent, most certainly. Well, if we uh, can just talk about a few things <laughs> other than music, Kenny, to start off with. Um, when when you agreed to do this, uh, you, you shared with me a few things, but... Um, your upbringing has been quite religious, hasn't it? You were you were brought up by the Jesuits. Just tell us a little bit about that education and formational time of your life. Yeah, well, I'm I'm half Spanish, so my mum is a you know a, a typical uh, well was she's passed away now, bless her. Uh, she was a, a Roman Catholic, Spanish Roman Catholic, and uh, my father was uh, an Anglican, not practicing very much. Um, towards the end of his life, he did he did come into the into the, the Catholic Church right in, at the eleventh hour. But um, I was I went to school at Saint Ignatius Church, Stamford Hill, which is a unique place in London, huge huge Jewish community. So a lot of my friends are Jewish, um, and that's the same school that Alfred Hitchcock attended when he was a youngster. And uh, back in those days, yeah, we we were educated by the Jesuits and uh, and a few nuns thrown in. And a few bubbles thrown across the classroom. <laughs> if I remember right, one of them hit me on the head once, and uh, it did knock some sense into me. Uh, Sister Pat did that. They were different days, but um, <laughs> their methods worked. <laughs> it did work. It's interesting, Kenny, because I've spoken to a few people who've had a Roman Catholic kind of education in that kind of format, and and you do expect somebody to say it was all kind of you know getting whacked around the ear but with the dusters and and the board board rubbers and things but but some people said it was actually a joyful how, you know despite the the kind of um strictness of it was it was it a fun time it was it was very good and um you know i was very much into uh into you know that that type of education not all of the lessons i enjoyed but i did at a very early age have a sort of um, a leaning towards theology and philosophy. So from quite a young age, I was reading stuff like that. So I would spend a lot of time with some of the Jesuit priests. One of them was, uh, he was originally a master at Oxford and uh, Father Derek Henshaw, he's passed away now. And um, he, we used to sit down and chat uh, all, you know, for years on, on deep stuff and theology and you know, we disagreed on a few things. You may be familiar with a, a, a writer uh, called Tellard de Chardin, 
and uh, we, you know, he, he was a Jesuit as well, and we sort of, we disagreed on Tellard, but on most other areas we agreed, but we was, that was, I enjoyed that environment, and, and I stayed in contact with the Jesuits, and for many, many years, even over into London, some of the Jesuits at Farm Street in London, and um, yeah, I like their, you know, I like where they were at, they spent a huge amount of time studying, so mm-hmm. all the questions I had growing up as a teenager, they were able to tackle most of them, you know? Yeah. And and just going back to Alfred Hitch- Hitchcock, were there were there as many shrines there to him as there were to the Blessed Virgin Mary, or you know was it was it very clear that Hitchcock was there had been there? No, I don't think many people. I think some people knew, but it wasn't. There was no placard on the on the um, on the wall or anything like that. It was just something that I found out later on when I researched Alfred Hitchcock's background and and obviously I was watched when I was younger watched some of his his movies and stuff yeah and and you and you formed a friendship with a, a chap called Mark Hotel who went who went on to actually become a bishop a Roman Catholic bishop he, he's down in Plymouth yes, is that right he's the bishop he's the bishop of Plymouth yeah and he was he was just entering into the seminary Allen Hall at London and we corresponded with each other by letter for a number of years and then when I became a pop star I did bump been to him a few times uh, at Westminster Cathedral when he was sort of the right hand man to uh, the Archbishop there, the, the Cardinal. Um, and obviously he, he's gone bigger and, and better things. He was always, I think, earmarked for that, a very intelligent guy and, 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 a, and a good guy, you know. But uh, yeah, we grew up on, he grew up on a council estate just a little further up the road from the council estate I grew up on. So I knew his, I knew his parents as well, you know. Yeah. And 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 where are you now with with the theology and religious stuff, Kenny? Once a Catholic, always a Catholic. Does that apply to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. As the saying goes, I'll die for the old religion. Now, the thing is, um, we go to mass as a family, and it's what we practice. Uh, one of my daughters just going through her first Holy Communion classes now, and yeah, it's my wife's a Roman Catholic, so. Um, it's very much part of our, our lives, you know, but, um, and we, uh, uh, um, it makes us tick. It's what mm. makes us tick. And um, it's a good thing. You know, I don't force it on people. I certainly don't even force it on the children, but uh, in an environment of, uh, of understanding love and, and all the rest of it, they, they may, you know, they may choose that and they have, but and as they get older, they may see the value, the value of, of faith. Because as far, you know, my opinion is, uh, Without faith, um, in, a, in a, to a certain degree, or truth, uh, you're sort of you're only half in reality. You know, you're in the world, yeah, and you're cracking on with it. But you, you uh, if you want the full scope of reality, then then that gives you that dimension uh, of, the, of the the visible and the invisible. You know. Yeah. What What is it you you get out of going to church, Kenny? Is it you know? Is it receiving of Holy Communion? Is that is that really important to you? um absolutely that is the that is the you know that's the summit and that's the that's the top of the mountain you know that's what it's all about i mean uh, ultimately um because uh yeah that's what i think i, I feel that, that christ came he came to establish that and establish the sacraments and um and certainly those are those are the sources of uh, of grace and more in particular sanctifying grace and so i know this sounds like very old theology and some people may not get that but um, but it's uh, it's unchanged. It, it, it's you know, truth doesn't change. You know, it's uh, it's you can develop and unpack it and unpeel it and 
and understand it more, but it is what it is. So in a sense, I grew up um, like that. And I mean, in my teens, I did come away for a bit and I explored other religions, other cults, other stuff, things like that. And I grew up with a lot of people with different religions around me, but I soon, I soon began to knuckle down and delve right into uh, the Christian faith and to have a great understanding. And then, and then eventually for me, the penny drops. I thought, wow, you know, I don't need to go searching anymore. I, I'm home. I'm home. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like what you said there about that. You know, you kind of come back to it. Certainly when I'm celebrating mass, I, I, I'm always struck. Gosh, I'm just, I'm just another person that's added to this exceptionally long line of people that have celebrated over years and years and years and years. And it, and it remains in all intents and purposes unchanged. And I, and I think that's something quite beautiful about that actually. Um, And very nourishing. And and it's lovely to hear. And I was wondering, Kenny, how, um, how your faith kind of helps you in kind of, you know, moments of success, like your music career in the nineties, but also in the, you know, you had, I was reading, you had some pretty tricky times with a, a family member, didn't you? And just, just tell us a little bit about, you know, the highs and lows of faith it's um you know i sometimes challenge my congregation that they um you know you can't just be faithful when things are going well i'm just wondering what you might think about that yeah <laughs> no it's easy yeah it's easy to exist in an ivory tower and feel all snug and comfortable you have to come down from the ivory tower and and, and uh, mix it up a bit and uh, and take a few a few wounds you know get in the battle i mean with with the um, with what happened to me and, and the success of the nineties, of course, you know, I was a normal young lad, and um, obviously, I've, I, you know, you know, I've got an autobiography coming out later this year, which is called "Bearing My Soul." Obviously, I'm telling everything um, and uh, revealing everything, and uh, also that that sort of link with soul music. But in the book, you know, I explore that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can derail, you can go a bit rock and roll. And all of those things. But for me, in answer to your question, what did the faith do? It's that anchor. It's that thing that keeps pulling you back onto the right track, you know, if you allow it, if you're in tune with it. And, uh, and it's a constant battle. I mean, I was reminded by an elderly priest friend of mine, Father O'Reilly, who really was a, a living saint. And he said, we're like pendulums. We swing towards God. We swing away. We swing towards. We swing away. Hopefully, by the end of our journey here, we're, we're swinging very much towards. And... Um, and I get that, you know, and it, there's always that intense struggle of, of, uh, of, of life as a, as a pop star back then and uh, the, the trappings that come with that. But ultimately, I do believe that, that I, was, I was honest with it. If I fell down, got back up, you know, and got on with the, with, with the fight and, and slowly but surely, you know, you lot, my life corrected itself and, and got into a, a right place. And I explore that in the autobiography, slight, not too deeply, but enough for people to get uh, get a gist of uh, that's that's where i was at but but the, the human elements there we're hu- it's so human the book's very human yeah and and how are the, how do the kids respond to to the faith stuff i mean mine are uh, all pushing towards their late teens and beyond and they're still resistant do you, do you get much resistance yeah. from them or, or are they quite encouraged encouraged are you encouraged by them yeah yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes they may find going to, to Mass at the Cathedral here in Norwich a little bit boring. And uh, it's not so happy, clappy as it used to be in the 70s when I grew up. And I'm, I can't say I, I miss that, if I'm being honest, because I lean more towards 
really ancient liturgy given given the chance when i was in london and often here when it's available i, I go to the tridentine litur liturgy you know so i go to what, what they now call the extraordinary form and the kids i think you know respond to that quite uh, nicely as well because it gives them a sense of mystery that sometimes the vernacular doesn't quite quite give you but um yeah there's a bit of resistance and i expect there to be more of that but I, I want them to understand that you know, you know, if they can, that that this isn't just a set of intellectual principles or rules. Uh, they need to understand this is a living uh, relationship with yeah. something very real, with someone very real, or or if you want to go even deeper into it, with with someone's very real, three persons, mm. and then you know, exploring the whole idea of the incarnation and stuff like that, and that this is something that is. Um, that is, uh, should come from the heart. It's not a head religion. It is if you're intellectual and great, like, but once you, it needs to pass from the head to the heart. At some point, it has to go to the heart. And once it arrives there, then uh, you can start to live it out and it, and it becomes uh, something really real. And things will, things will happen. I lost my mum early. You know, I looked after my dad with Alzheimer's for years. I've lost people along the way, have had successes and failures. And it's the rock, it's the foundation. It's the thing that I, kept coming back to and uh, it's a real living relationship uh with jesus christ I, th I think what you've said there ken is quite profound actually you know that that connection once you've got it in your you know it's all very well having it in the head but once, once it's gone to your heart that's when it really ma makes the connection and i think i think that's what my experience was is that i was always interested about it and always um learning and exploring but actually when it when it got me here i was kind of that's it. I was hook, line and sinker. I was in um, uh, and went from being a retail manager to a priest, which is which is extraordinary for me as well. Um, Kenny, I was wondering if um, I was wondering if hymns are important to you as a musician, not just as a musician, but as a, um, as a, you know, clearly a religious person. Do hymns play an important part of your life. Well, I grew up where I started. I started out doing music in church. Um, I learned the guitar. One of the guys at the parish taught me the acoustic guitar. And I got into the, you know, to music there. And obviously we were doing the typical songs of the 70s and some of those were like the St. Louis Jesuit songs and, and all the rest of it. And it was fun. It was fun. I enjoyed it. But I have to say and, and be honest that as time has gone on, I've, I've gone, I've become more traditionalist. And... Um, you know, it, it's, I do uh, gravitate towards the simple stuff and, and the more profound ancient stuff like Gregorian chant and plain chant and stuff like that. And I've spent time in monasteries, uh, you know, with Cistercians and stuff like that. And I just, uh, it's, it's become far less complex and more, more simple. So, uh, an uplifting for me that works for me it doesn't work for everyone someone some people want a tambourine and a guitar and they want to feel good about that and there's nothing wrong with that it's just i've i've slowly as i've gone on leaned more towards ancient things yeah I think and that it, may sound crazy coming from someone who makes noisy noisy soul pop music <laughs> well i think it comes back actually to this kind of connection with the heart i have to, i have to tell you kenny when i was going for ordination selection i was first time round, I didn't get through the first time, but I was actually uh, quite disparaging of, of the more tradition, traditional aspect of the, the church. And now I'm a vicar in a, in a Anglo-Catholic environment and everybody calls me Father Alex. And so right. I, I think it is, again, what you said is about, you know, once you make that connection in here, it, it kind of makes sense. So that's, 
And that's not to dispel, you know, artists out yeah. there who play, make some great Christian contemporary music as well. Um, Kenny, yeah. who, who were you listening to then? Who, who uh, music-wise, who, who were your heroes as a kid? Oh, well, ultimately, the top of the tree is Stevie Wonder, because that's the first record I ever bought. And because I, I grew up on a council estate and the majority of my friends were, you know, uh, Jamaican, some African, but we were, so ultimately, we were listening to black music and more importantly, that influx of um, black rhythm and blues and soul music was coming in from America and jazz funk and, and jazz fusion. So it was really, that was the culture, that was the environment. So I grew up really only knowing that. So you could say I'm a bit of a one trick pony because I only really know black music. So it's it's what I do. And I'm, I'm in the middle of recording an album now and it's extremely soulful and funky, as they would say. And, and so that's on it. But we were listening to the Earth, Wind and Fire, Dion Warwick, Bobby Cordwell, Bobby Womack. You know, and some of the more blue eyed soul artists like Mal, you know, Michael McDonald. But it was uh, ultimately black American soul. Yeah, I, I was um, I was when I was just preparing the questions, I, I was looking back at that and th there were very few kind of British soul artists around at that time, were there? And, and I, you know, I'm I'm an 80s kid, Kenny, and I was think, trying then trying to think of people who who I would perhaps put in that genre of soul. And, you know, I. I I, I don't know. I, I was even thinking of people like Boy George, who I think has got quite a soulful voice, um, Rick Astley uh, and, and guys like that. I couldn't put yeah, me on I, that. I, I, yeah, Rick. Yeah, Rick was great. Well, if you go to the, you've got the, you've got the group Lee John, Imagination, you've yeah. got Incognito, uh, Light of the World, the Brick Funk, you've got Loose Ends, and then later on in the 80s, towards the end of the 80s, you, of the 80s, you get Soul to Soul who had success in America. So there was a, there was a great deal of black music and obviously there was the Brit funk um, scene going on as well. Um, but again, uh, some of it crossed over into the charts and a lot of it didn't. So you kind of had to be in the know, but yeah. some of it did, as I say, chart, going to the charts and, um, uh, but it was largely dominated in the eighties by the, by the Americans really. And your, and your pathway to the music industry, Kenny, was it, was it straightforward? I don't want to. I don't want to unravel your autobiography. I mean, people need to go and buy the book. But the the pathway to to the record label was that quite straightforward, or was there a lot of toil and sweat to get there? How did it work for you? Um, yeah, there was a. a it was. A, it was. A, you had to go all round the houses, and um, it didn't happen overnight. Although it may have seemed when when it went off in nineteen ninety nine, when it may have seemed it was overnight. But I started out at the age of eighteen. And uh, uh, my friend's father, Freddie Sassoon, a good wheeler dealer, Jewish boy, he's passed away now, bless him. And he um, he got me into the studio that Eddie Grant owned. And Eddie Grant's brother produced my first two records, right. which were okay, not great, weren't hits, but they were signed to a small label. And it failed miserably. And I went back to work, did a nine to five. I only stayed out of work for a little while to pursue that. But then, so I had to carry on working and earning a crust and, you know, and paying my way at home. So I went to work ultimately in the end for BT, for British Telecom. It was while I was there that I met the right people in the, uh, accidentally almost, and then got my opportunity to record my first record, Outstanding. And then we walked it into Chrysalis Stroke EMI records and the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. 
were you were you did you, had you put a band together by this point Kenny or were you were you singing to backing tracks how did it work We were working with musicians on those first two records, Eddie Grant Studio, in, in in the studio itself. And I, I I got together with some musicians and we bought instruments through the 80s and keyboards and a friend of mine took up the bass guitar. And, you know, but it was it was noisy. It was um, it was unorganized and it, it wouldn't have worked. But certainly um, as I got into uh, the recording of the those first initial records with EMI, we then did eventually start to rehearse bands and um, and go out on tour. So it was kind of back to front in a, in a sense. But the other thing, the real mad thing, and I will tell you what I do reveal in the book, and not many people know it, uh, is that my first ever proper gig with a live band was the very first time I walked into the Albert Hall and performed alongside some great artists like Lala Hathaway, Freddie Jackson, yeah. Lonnie Liston-Smith, Edwin Starr, Incognito. Yeah. And I was very green, very much in the deep end and way out of my depth. But I, that was the first gig I ever did with a live band. Ruby Turner was on backing vocals. And uh, so there I am. I'd never been in the Albert Hall. And you know the Albert Hall, what it looks like if you've seen it. It's very mm -hmm. overwhelming, certainly when you're standing in the middle of it with, with, a, with a full house. But that was where I kind of... Um, did my my initiation and my sort of uh, you know my introduction to live music well, so it was very much the deep end but uh, we got well, on with it there's worse places you could have gone on that's <laughs> not a bad first gig is it oh no the yeah the worst the worst places come later on <laughs> much later <laughs> and and did you ever contemplate did you ever contemplate that you might um be in a band or were you always intent on being a solo artist kenny what was that for you no, I always wanted to be a solo artist and um, because uh, the only person you could fall out with is yourself. But you, you, there's no other, back, no other members you can split with and the whole thing can fall apart. So, it, But that's a lonely game because sometimes you're out on the road doing promotional stuff and you're on your own or with one other person. It's only when you're out on tour you've got the whole band with you. So it can be, that can be a lonely world. Um, but you are at least uh, in have some level of control over what happens, and um, and it's, it suits me. I, I don't think I would have worked very well in a, in some sort of pop band or boy band. And, and what was the deal with the record label? Was it kind of a one album kind of let's see how we do, or was it kind of a multi five, six, seven mega deal that you signed up for? It was exactly that. It was one single with an option for another single, and I think an option for the album. And it was kind of, let's see how we go. And, uh, and it could have all ended miserably because Outstanding, the first record, failed when it came out in 1990. It went to 79 and straight back out. Um, it was only through the record company's commitment, my manager, Steve at the time, Steve Finan, that we pursued it and we got it remixed and a rap, uh, some rappers were put on it from, from New York. And, uh, and it, it sort of, and at the time it was completely building through the discotheques, through the nightclubs. So it took on a life of its own and it almost became an unstoppable juggernaut. Mm. So, and then it steamed its way into the charts in, in 91. And, and, and I think the key thing for people to, particularly any younger people watching this, is that, you know, record sales in, in the early 90s particularly, they were 
significant, weren't they? Weren't they? It's not like now where we've got all the the downloads and Spotify and whatnot. Your your record sales were important, yeah. weren't they? And they were huge, <clears throat> and they were they were everything. Um, yeah, and you could you could sell a lot of records, and uh, and it was the reverse back then. You you sold records, and when you toured, you did that to promote the album. Now. The albums don't sell so so many copies, and you that you earn your money out on the road. You have to you have to work a bit harder now, a lot harder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and so when you've got this this record that's that's had success, you you become a bit of a golden ticket, then do you? The the, the record label are kind of oh, we want a bit more of Kenny. Let's um, you know. And then and then yeah. your album was absolutely huge, wasn't it? Yeah, it was huge. It, it, it was double platinum and um, yeah you it changes because you suddenly go from uh, getting the chew to the record company to them sending you cars to pick you up <laughs> of course uh, the tube is much cheaper and the car is more expensive and you're ultimately paying for the car but uh, it, it, it's uh, it, you know you they start to roll out the the red carpet a little bit more uh, and because they're uh, they're capitalizing in the in, in, on their investment uh, so it makes sense. It's, it's a business, you know. It's a business, and um, it keeps the, the machine keeps churning and turning, and uh, and pop stars come and go. And 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 that must have been absolutely wonderful times for you, you know, singing music you loved, with your voice being heard not just across the UK but across Europe and the world. You know, just you know, what was it like being, you know, effectively a, a big pop star in the nineties? It was great. I mean, it was very busy. It was hectic. Very, there was a lot of pressure, and you were forever traveling here and over to Europe. So some of it becomes a bit of a blur. But um, it, it's great to be on top of the pops and those shows that you know you grew up watching, and finally getting on those. And you know, and the other thing, the the thread that's kind of run through my life, certainly for the you know all my life, but the last thirty years, is that. Um, I met a lot of I met a lot of nice people, and I, I made a lot of friends out of out of you know people who started out as fans really, and now we become friends and people in the industry and and stuff like that. And uh, so that's a good thing. I, I met a lot of nice people and made some very good friends. And when the music's said and done, and um, and because all things all things have an ending, um, that uh, those things endure. Those my friendships and the people I've met along the way on this journey, that 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 endures, and that that for me is yeah. the nuts and bolts. I think of 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 this of this experience on this uh, this this in this world on this planet. Kenny, I, I want to ask you because I I, I spoke to Rick Witter from Shed Seven just recently. He was on the Godcast as well, and and, and this idea yeah. about your as a musician, you you as, you know, um, there's a desire I would guess always to do new material but I suppose the fans want the the back catalogue you know I'm a I'm a huge Depeche Mode fan and, and if they don't sing certain songs I, I'm not happy you know and and um how does that sit with you Kenny you know I mean you you, you you're gonna make records and with the greatest of respect they're not going to be maybe as successful as the 90s does does that deter you in any way or is it just you know yeah. you've got this loyal fan base and you just keep going for it 
Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of both. They do want the old stuff and I enjoy singing the old songs and that, you know, that's the foundation that, that the career is built upon. But my fans do like the new stuff. And I, I've, even though I haven't charted any records for a, a number of years, I've had, I have consistently put out material, certainly in what we would call the soul scene. And they refer to themselves as the soul family. And it very much is like a, a giant family, that scene here. And um, so they've been very receptive to new stuff and, and again I'm in the middle of a new album now which is far more commercial it may not please them as much as that they want when they're ardent soul soul fans but it's uh, far more commercial but you have to keep going I mean creatively if you're if you're a painter paint if you're a singer sing if you're an, if you're a songwriter write yeah. you know if you're a preacher preach you know it's just like you just got to crack on and yeah. get on with it you know yeah. And and you said earlier, Kenny, that you you know you were very much in a box in terms of the music you liked. Is is that evolved over the years? Are you still very much, you know, um, a soul man, or, or do, do you enjoy listening to other genres as well? I do. I mean, in in the, the sort of the mid to late night mid nineties, I started to go on a, a path of discovery of of unpacking the sixties. And, you know, from all of the crazy stuff like The Doors and The Rolling Stones and stuff like that. And then uh, and understanding a bit more of the blues. Uh, yeah. And obviously I grew up, I grew up around the 80s. So I was familiar with all of the new romantic stuff. And, and ironically, all these years that I've become friends with Tony Hadley and the, all of the, you know, the Heaven 17. And, mm. and obviously you go west, they were more soulful than the new romantic. But uh, and I've done gigs with them, and they've, and also they've, uh, in the last few years, all of those acts, Midjur and Kim Wilde, who I'm good friends with, they've all rallied around me because you, know, you probably know my daughter has not been well for the last, I've got a young daughter who's not been well for the last four years, four months. And uh, so they've rallied around to, to do some fundraising so that we could uh, enable her to go to Germany numerous times for, for medical treatment there. So it's mad, you know, how, how, it, how it's gone. And yeah, so I, I do listen to other stuff. And uh, when I tune into stations like Radio 2, um, which the kids don't like, they want Kiss and they want the noisy <laughs> stuff. They want Radio 1 and they want Capital. And um, But when I get my way and I listen to something like Radio 2, I do get to listen to like the new Paul Carrick single the other day and other stuff that's going around. There's some, there's some great songs being written, proper, proper songs. Yeah. And, all... uh, and well-crafted. Yeah, there's still some good music. I, I mean, we have this, I have the same battle as you, but I, I love discovering new music. I really do. And and there is some good music. And I'm always kind of just, um, I like Jules Holland because you get some, you know, you get some artists on there that you perhaps wouldn't get the normal uh, airplay and stuff. Um, Kenny, I don't want to go into your private life, but you, you talked about your daughter. How's your daughter? Is, she, is the treatment uh, going well? She She's stable. I mean... What it is, for Alex, the the um, she um, she was in 2017. She was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, and uh, not really much they could do here apart from the usual chemotherapy and maybe radiation, which would have um, made her very ill actually. Um, and so I rejected that. And, and they they said we had six months nine months if we took their treatment i resisted their treatment because i didn't want her to experience that especially when it wasn't a cure uh, and then again you talk about thinking about outside the box I've, obviously i've got a background in medicine to a degree because I, i've got a bachelor of science degree in chinese medicine 
in uh, Oriental Medicine. I studied that past that in 2010. So I was very much into alternative complementary stuff, uh, nutrients, uh, things that boost the immune system instead of wiping it out. And, uh, and I'm in contact with people in that world, doctors in that world. So uh, yeah, we, we embarked upon that, a whole holistic, healthy change of everything from diet and uh, to enable the body to put up its own fight against something that really was and is um, you know, deadly and terminal. Um, but then I went to Germany to Cologne 16 times with her to do dendritic cell therapy, again, immune-based stuff. And now she's under a, a doctor in Frankfurt and she's receiving a, a phase two trial medicine there. Again, no side effects, very gentle. You hardly know she's even taking the tablet. But that, I think, has slowed the tumour down. So here we are, four years, four months on. Have we cured it? We haven't, but she's here. She's got quality of life. She's gone to school today. She's never lost her hair. Her immune system's probably stronger than all of us put together. But we're up against a very, a very, very aggressive tumour in the worst place you could in the brain that you could have it. But thank God we're here and we have to take every day as a blessing. We live from day to day. And uh, in a way, you could say that we've achieved a very small miracle, not the big one we're looking for, but you never know. The world of brain tumors changes so fast that something may present itself to us in the coming days or coming weeks that isn't available. For instance, the medicine she's on now, I would heard about it two years ago, but I couldn't access it. Now we've accessed it and she's on it. And certainly I think that has slowed things down. And uh, in a way, we have to take that for what it is every day that we're here, all of us, every day, all of us here. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. And so... It is what it is, but it's been an enormous fight and an enormous sacrifice and expense that we could only go so far with, hence the fundraising, which enabled us to go much further with it. And, and here we are, you know, but we, you know, we get up, we laugh, we play music, we take every day uh, and treat it with joy because mm. that for me is also a medicine for her. And she's spent very little time in hospital suffered very little in a, in a way, although she's slightly paralyzed from it and visions uh, impaired by it. But in a way, she hasn't gone through the enormous amount of suffering she would have gone no. if we'd gone other routes uh, with no cure in sight. And, and I'm not bashing the NHS, I'm not bashing the oncology here. I'm just saying that for, for some, you have to make a decision, say, you know, you're offering me another three months with that, uh, three months of hell. Mm. Um, so, uh, but we've ended up with four years and four months of none of that. No. So it is what it is. Kenny, thanks for being so open about that. It's uh, it's inspiring stuff, mate. It really is. Just um, people, I'm just thinking what people are gonna would want me to say is, what's that done for your faith? What's that? How's your faith been affected by that 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 situation, if at all? You know, it's, 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 it's a, there's a, there's a, there's something there that you, unless you know it or you've experienced it, you can't understand it, but you would think it, it would shatter some people's faith and it does. And then that would make me question how deep the roots of it were. And it found that fertile ground and it gone to the heart. Um, so with us, it's strengthened and, um, and we've seen a lot of things around us in the last five years and different people and, and aspects of humanity. They're not religious people even, but the way people have stepped up for the music game and helped us and been there for us, that speaks volumes, you know. The law of love is above everything. Mm. 
you can judge people you can you can go through your rule book and, and think that i'm all right jack and you're not all right but at the end of the day the law of love is mm. is ultimate so i've seen love i've seen love from people you know and um and that that is an that is another thing that you know that that, that is uh, that's, that's mind-blowing and you realize that um god is at work in all of us, uh, whether we know it or not, or whether we're aware of it or not, he's at work. And um, ultimately, that that is that makes your faith deeper. And also, I've had experiences of that in the past. I mean, my mum was in the last two weeks, two, three weeks of her life. She died at 56 of cancer. Although the chemo absolutely ravaged her. And I believe that's probably the thing that's, that, that did, did the, you know, did more damage than anything. But the... Um, and the last thing she wanted to do, she wanted to go to Lourdes. So we went to Lourdes in France. It was a very, very poor, very poorly. And uh, there was a chance we wouldn't even make it out. But she was determined she would go to the, the, the shrine. On, we'd go on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. And we did. And, uh, and it was, uh, we didn't get the miracle that many get, that physical cure. But I can tell you now, we, I experienced, we experienced something uh, spiritual there that um, is, is much deeper than you even words allow you to express. Um, at a time when she was clearly dying, she didn't have many days left, and you would think that you'd be falling apart, but I, we, I experienced, and she experienced, and all of us experienced a profound peace, a profound peace and acceptance that was just not the peace that you get from the absence of suffering or the absence of... Um, of poverty or any of those things that people associate i'm peaceful i'm happy now i've got loads of money or loads of food in the fridge and a roof over my head yeah we need those we need those things not too much but we need those things certainly we experienced a profound peace that was on a level that's so deep and uh, and it was um and that in a sense was a miracle of what happened there and then yes she did pass away and in the end as crazy as it was, my mother dying at 56, all was well and all will be well. All manner of things will be well, as Julian of Norwich said. So it was well. And that is that goes beyond reason, beyond what we're able to comprehend. Because normally you'd say you shouldn't be experiencing that right now. Not in those circumstances. You shouldn't be experiencing that. But you are. And it's much deeper than than we even comprehend kenny i just want to say to people anybody who's watching this just listen to what kenny's just said there about about the love being at work kenny i lost my old dad to dementia and uh and it was horrific but actually i could see love at work as well and and what you've said is is deeply profound and, and deeply inspiring so i do hope people who, who've got similar issues similar problems just li listen Back to what Kenny's just said there, because it's it's pretty good stuff. That Kenny, God bless you, mate. <laughs> let's let's um, God bless let, let's just move on to a few a few other things before we wind up. Living in a box. I, when I was doing my research, like, oh, Kenny Thomas is now singing with "Living in a Box." How did that come around? Well, Marcus and Titch out of "Living in a Box" are old friends from our connections at Chrysalis Records back right. in the day. And Richard Darkshire, the original singer, amazing singer, he'd basically hung up the mic, uh, thrown the towel in and said, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. And they had a number of gigs that they wanted to do. And the only person they really had in mind at the time was me. 
Uh, I cut my face fit. We were, you know, we knew each other. And so, um, yeah, they said, do you fancy? I said, well, let's get together and have a jam. Let's, let's see how it, how it goes. They're great songs. They're fun to mm -hmm. sing. And we did it. And uh, it locked me into, it locked me into a lot of those big 80s festivals. And really, I'm a 90s artist. So I really didn't fit the bill for the 80s. But it locked me, it sneaked me into a big audience at some of those huge festivals. And it's one of those things where, again, it boils down to it's not about money, it's not about anything, it, 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 about what we could earn out of it. And believe me, we didn't earn a vast amount out of it. But the whole thing was this is this is going to be fun. This is going to be enjoyable. Yeah. And um, it certainly what it certainly was fun. It was enjoyable. And we've got a well, we did have a couple of gigs coming up. One's just been pulled because of the what's going on with the extension of uh, the lockdowns and stuff. Um, but we're doing that, and and, uh, and next year, unfortunately, I've got to focus on the new album and my own tour and stuff like that. I'm doing a tour slightly later this year, God willing, if uh, if our our leaders let us out to play. Um, so, um, but the the living in a box, great songs, great yeah. great guys, and it was a whole lot of fun. Great. Fabulous. Great to hear. And the, the other thing, uh, Kenny, is uh, I know I'm a priest, I know I'm a vicar, but I am a huge fan of Gary Barlow. So there's me watching the old Gary Barlow yeah. prunathons and then who pops up? But your good self, I'm thinking, wow, that's a bit, I wasn't expecting that. How, how did that come about? Did you know Gary or did he get in touch? Or Well, I've, I've met Gary a few times in the past and uh, we did a concert in the last couple of years, it was a, a 50th of a, of a mutual friend of ours, a producer called Elliot Kennedy, who's who's uh, making the new album with me. And we've got a history, a 31 year history, me and Elliot and him and Gary work together. They're on projects together at this moment in time. And um, so we bumped into each other at the Elliot's 50th birthday bash, which also was raising money for charity. And um, fair play to Gary. He was pulling artists out of places that you didn't know existed. <laughs> and some of those some of those performances were just amazing and when he approached me and asked me I, I was very honest with him I said look Gary um you know I'm not the most technical mind I mean I'll produce I do I do some work here on the, the computer but I'd never done anything online mm. any singing online it, it for me it was almost anathema it was like listen you know you've got to do live gigs mm. not this singing into a camera in a room alone but I said look you talk me through it tell me how you want to set it up and do it and I'm up for it and um, again, it, it was fun. It was good to do. And uh, for some, for an, for an old fogey like me now, almost fifty-three in a, in a few weeks, <laughs> I um, I've never had yeah, I've never had so many hits in on um, on uh, online. I think I think it racked up four and a half million views, wow. which for someone like me, a nineties artist who there was no internet when we were do, having hits, there was no Twitter, TikTok whatever uh facebook um so it was great and um and, and i don't regret it it was fun to do and, and and i was it was a privilege to be part of it and gary you know you've got to take your hat off to gary uh he's he's a clever guy he's you know he's the real deal he's a great he's a great musician songwriter and uh and i've got a, a lot of respect for gary yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm a big fan. I've, I've seen Ted that a few times and, and Gary on his own. So, yeah, uh, brilliant. Kenny, it's been absolutely 
lovely, really lovely talking to you. And, and um, I'm Thank so you. glad that uh, you're keeping positive about things. And you, when's the book out? Well, just you might as well plug it. When's it out? Yeah, well, the book's called Bearing My Soul. You can pre-order it uh, from a website called Music Glue, G-L-U-E, the sticky stuff, Music Glue. Just do a search for Kenny Thomas, you'll find it. I would like the book to have been out really mid to end, end of summer. Problem we've got is um, really it's the pandemic and the COVID. It's manufacturing times. So we're, you know, it's at the stage now where it's being, you know, going to be proofread and uh, we really would like to move it forward to, uh, you know, manufacturing and, and release. But uh, times for manufacturing, not just books, records, CDs, vinyl, for instance, which has made a huge comeback. The, the lead times on those are huge now. So if we're being really honest and we're about to put something out on, on social media this week to say, look, we've just got to be dead straight with you. It's looking more like it will be towards the end of the year, October, November, which isn't a bad thing because that coincides absolutely perfectly with um the 14th of october is the actual date of uh, 30 years since my first album voices came out yeah, well, there so are. you know all these things all these things uh, happen when they're meant to happen and they happen for a reason so it won't be out the end of the summer it'll be later in the year but it it's worth it it's a good read it's a good read if you're into soul music and if you're into my thing but also i think it's a uh, looking at it, you know, uh, in a detached, objective way, it's actually not a bad read if you don't even know who I am or what <laughs> I've done. Fabulous. And and finally, live shows, you've got some coming up. We've got dates. You'll find them on Facebook. Um, I don't know. I haven't got them in front of me. But we've got to do dates through October, London, and there's some northern dates and more being added to it, uh, out with the live band. Um but as I say, I will hold my breath slightly on that because we just don't know what's uh, <laughs> what's around the corner with variants and whatnot. So, but at the moment, I'm hope, hoping and praying it all goes ahead. It should do. Tickets are on sale, and some of them, are, I think, they've even sold out. Fabulous, fabulous. Well, take a look, particularly uh, if you're up in the northwest. Any gigs around Manchester Way, keep an eye out. And, and Kenny, just again, it's been great getting you on the Godcast. Thanks ever so much, and. Uh, We'll, we'll keep you in our prayers and your family and uh, we send a love to you from the Northwest and yeah, thanks thank for coming you. on the Godcast. Yeah, big love to the Northwest. You take care, Father Alex, and I will um, keep you in my prayers. Take care. Bye. See you.